0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me in God's Word to Luke chapter 5. Today as we continue our study through Luke's Gospel, we come to one of the more well-known stories, accounts of Christ and his ministry uh, of the healing of a paralytic laid, let down uh, through a roof to be put before his feet. And so we read today in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, and we will read uh, to the end of the section in Verse 26. If you picked up an ESV, you can find that on page 861 uh, of our CART Bibles. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 and reading through verse 26. And before we go to the Lord and hear his life-giving word, please join me again in prayer, seeking his blessing. Let's pray. O Lord, we come now to your word, because you have drawn us and you have called us And you will speak to us. We thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would use it as your scalpel to lay us bare. We pray that you would cause us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we would receive the word of truth as we find it in Jesus Christ. Do this work for the sake of your name among your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. amazement seized them all, And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. You know, one of the undeniable realities of Jesus' ministry, as he walked the earth and, and spoke and taught to the people, one of the undeniable realities of Jesus' ministry was conflict. Conflict with the scoffers, conflict with the critics, and everywhere that Jesus went, he faced two things. He faced crowds, and he faced conflict. And that was God's plan all along, actually. You may remember back in chapter 2 that righteous Simeon promised Mary in the temple, this son of yours has been appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That was God's purpose, to reveal hearts and to do it through opposition and through conflict. And now we are seeing that be played out. In fact, Luke is drawing our attention to it in verse 17. He writes on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, there's a difference here between Luke and the other gospel accounts, because this This uh, miracle account is in both Matthew and Mark, but it's only here in Luke that we meet the religious leaders right up front. And the other two, uh, the account uh, sort of throws them in at the end, after the roof has been excavated, after the sins have been forgiven. And oh, by the way, there were some Pharisees there, and they were also offended at what Jesus had to say, but not here in Luke. He is drawing our attention to it, the very first thing we know, is that there is a committee that has been established that's been sent from all of Galilee and all of Judea and even as far as Jerusalem to check in and to see about what they've heard, about what's happening up there in the north country. And the Holy Spirit wants you to see this conflict. That's why he inspired Luke to put it right up front and center. He wants you to see this because this is the beginning of the narrative arc that will take us through the next 19, 20 chapters. And it will end in the trial, and the death, and the the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it begins here in Luke chapter 5 with the first official opposition from the religious leaders. In fact, we haven't met the Pharisees, those prototypical enemies of Christ in the Gospels. We haven't met them yet in Luke's account. But in the next six accounts, they will show up every time. And opposition is increasing And the Holy Spirit is putting this before us, and God is using human conflict to accomplish his purposes. God is using the hard hearts of these unbelieving men to reveal his Savior. And he is using criticism to draw attention to Jesus' authority. But you need to know that that is still what God is about in the world. The Word of God is preached. Forgiveness in Jesus' name goes forth, and there's opposition, and there's criticism. And some people scoff, and some people blow it off. Others, perhaps, like the Pharisees, remain silent, but inside there is that silent internal dialogue of disbelief. Who do these people think they are with this message? And there is opposition. But through that opposition and that criticism, humanity is always forced to answer the question that's at the heart of this passage. It's the, heart that was at the, it was the question that was at the heart of these critics, actually. And the question is, who is this? Who is this man who is proclaiming forgiveness of sins? Who is this man that the Christians proclaim at the heart of this message? And what we're going to see, both in this passage and I think also in our lives, is that the Lord is revealing his power through his delivered people. As he puts us with a message to preach to a world that doesn't want to hear it, he puts us in the world and there is conflict, and Jesus is demonstrating his power through his delivered people. That's what we find. And he did it here, and the same thing is played out over and over again. Now I mentioned that the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to the conflict in this passage, but there are a few other things that catch our attention as well. The first thing that we need to see in this passage is a faith that reaches. That's our first point. It's a faith that reaches. Now, if you grew up in the church, nothing could be more familiar than this passage, except maybe Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Maybe uh, you can do as I can, and you can close your eyes, and you can see it playing out uh, in flannel graph. Uh, on a, a little board as, as your teacher, Miss Cindy Ananasi, sits there with her big bowl of candy that at the end of Sunday school everybody will get to pick just one and you can still hear that industrial dehumidifier whirring in the background and you know the contours of this story. And this is exactly what you've heard from the time you were a little child. Maybe you're so familiar with this uh, that you've already blown it off and you've already said, yes, yes, I know what's there. But maybe for the many of you who are coming to this with fresh eyes, there is a real treat here. There's a treat, because this is one of the most poignant, one of the clearest images in Scripture of what faith looks like. That's one of the questions that I deal with over and over again as a minister of the gospel. It is, what does faith look like? How would I know if it shows up in my life? Very often, that question is asked by the young people in our number. And they're wrestling with this question of whether they have actually trusted in Jesus or whether they've simply swallowed what their parents have taught them. And how would I know, what would it look like if I was a person of faith? How can I know if it's there? And many others are asking that question, whether you're young or you're old, and the question is, what does faith look like? But take a notice of verse 20. It says, Jesus saw their faith. Now later we're going to find out that Jesus perceived a lot of things that nobody else could witness. He perceived the unspoken thoughts in the hearts of the Pharisees. That's not what's happening in verse 20. This is talking about a faith that showed up. This is talking about a faith that showed up in actions and words and intentions and deeds. It was a faith that was visible not just to Jesus, but to everybody who was there on that day. And here we get the idea that living faith looks like a willingness to overcome worldly obstacles in order to get to Jesus. That's what faith looks like. It's a faith that reaches. It's a willingness to overcome obstacles in order to get to Jesus. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the roof tiles. Here are these men. And they are seeking Jesus. They're seeking him because of something they have heard, something they believe about Jesus, compassion about his willingness to heal, something about his ability to heal. And here they come, carrying their friend on a stretcher to meet with the one that they are able to deli- that is able to deliver him. And as so often happens, as they are seeking Jesus, they meet an obstacle. Now their obstacle was a crowd. It was the popularity of Jesus and the fact that they couldn't get within eyesight, they couldn't get within earshot. It was a physical obstacle for them. And how many of us in that situation would have given up? And their hearts uh, perhaps sunk in despair, at least one or two of them. And maybe there was a good Calvinist among them who said, you know, it looks like we're providentially hindered from getting to Jesus today. And maybe we should turn around and go home. But they didn't allow that obstacle to stop them. They reached beyond that obstacle and over the wall of Jesus' popularity. In fact, over the wall of the house. And they took their friend up to the roof. Because they had to. Because they believed that Jesus was the only hope for their paralyzed friend. And yes, it means that getting to Jesus is going to be a little bit harder than they had anticipated. There's going to be a little bit more sweat involved. There's going to be some digging. There's going to be a little bit more labor. It might have even meant that there was going to be some social embarrassment. We read this in the matter of two verses. We, We forget how long it must have taken them to take their friend to the top of the house and dig through a foot and a half of tile and thatch While everybody downstairs is trying to listen to Jesus and dust and dirt is falling on their robes and and they simply must have thought that these people are crazy or at least they're a mild annoyance. They weren't perturbed by that. They weren't put off by that. They pressed forward. They They didn't care how much it would cost them, the extra labor that was involved. They didn't care about the social embarrassment of getting to Jesus. Their faith made them press forward because they simply had to get to Jesus. This past May, uh, Time Magazine, I'm chuckling because I'm seeing the image already in my mind. Time Magazine picked up the story uh, of a Turkish soccer fan uh, by the name of Ali Demirkaya. In in, uh, Turkey, every uh, local community has their own soccer club, and Ali Demirkaya loves his local football club. He has to be at every game, especially if it's an important game, Uh, The thing was, uh, earlier in the season, Allie had gotten into some sort of trouble and was banned from the stadium for a full year. And there was an important game coming up, and so Allie did what every reasonable person would do. He went and he rented an industrial crane with a bucket. And you can find pictures of Ali. There he is, and there is the stadium, and the people are playing down below. And Ali drove that crane right up to the edge of the stadium, and he's above all of the rest in his own luxury box. He didn't care what it cost him. It was only about 68 bucks. And he didn't care how embarrassing it might be. He had to see his team, and so he was willing to press forward. And that's the same sort of thing that we see in these men here. And Jesus saw their reaching faith. He saw their willingness to overcome obstacles in order to get to him. Now folks, this is what faith always looks like. It may be different obstacles for each of us. It might not be a physical barrier like a crowd that we can't get past, but faith always looks like a willingness to overcome obstacles in order to get to Jesus. Go ahead and and read Hebrews chapter 11 today when you get home. Remember those patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith, those people who overcame foreign journeys and aging bodies and and human reproach. Remember those men and those women who gave a friendly welcome to the spies and conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and raised strong out of weakness. And the list goes on and on and on. And at the end of that list, we have an encouragement to do the same sort of thing that they did. Hebrews chapter 12, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight. Every sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does faith look like? It looks like a willingness to overcome any obstacle between us and Jesus. Now in Hebrews it tells us that some of those obstacles may be your sin. Just lay aside every sin, every weight which clings so closely and you know the way that that can be an obstacle because your sin often whispers in your ear, you can't get close to him. He's too busy with other people who, who have his ear and he doesn't have time for you because you're not clean enough to come close to him. And faith says, I don't care what's between me and him. I know that if I can only lay my case before him, that he will meet me with his compassion, with his authority. Maybe for you it's sin. Maybe maybe it's simply the desire for ease. Isn't that one of the obstacles that we face? I I don't really want to press forward in, in holiness in this aspect of my life at least because quite frankly, it's easier just to leave it alone. I don't need to, to, to go beyond those things. I don't need to deal with the discontent I feel in my life that keeps me from, from reaching forward to Jesus. Maybe it's skeptical unbelief. You know, all those things I heard growing up, those flannel graphs Sunday school lessons, maybe it was all just fluff. And there's an obstacle. Maybe you need to spend some time asking the Lord, seeking, what, oh Lord, are, what are the obstacles that, are in my life, what are the things that try to convince me that I can't get to Jesus, and even if I could, he wouldn't want to deal with me anyway. That's what faith does. It reaches. It doesn't matter what it might cost you, and it doesn't matter how embarrassing it might be, that kind of faith is worth it, because we find in this passage that Jesus uses that kind of reaching faith. The rest of verse 20 bears this out. He says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here's an amazing thing, and we might, uh, might have a hard time swallowing it first, but the Lord is saying that the collective faith of these men has something to do with the gift of salvation and forgiveness for this individual. That Jesus is using this faith, even this pressing, reaching, persistent faith of others to do a work in this man's life. Now, uh, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. We need to make sure that we don't make it too restrictive. So when Jesus says, or when Luke says, he saw their faith, that plural pronoun there, that clearly indicates the man himself, the paralyzed man who's, who's laying there must have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget about him. Up until the end of the passage, he's just passive anyway. He's carried, he's lowered, he's... He's spoken to and he just receives. We forget that he's also there. And we wonder if maybe Jesus is just forgetting him, forgiving him, rather, of his sins because of someone else's faith. But that's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness of individual sins always comes through individual faith. You can think about Romans chapter 9 and the way that Paul writes and he says in the beginning of that chapter that he has an unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Why? Well, he says, I wish that, that I could even exchange myself for them. I wish that I would be even cut off from Christ so that they could be brought near. I wish that the Lord would would let them take my place in the kingdom of God. I wish there's so much sorrow. Why? Well, because they haven't pursued the righteousness of God by faith, we find out. In Romans chapter 9, verse 32. His kinsmen, according to the flesh, haven't drawn near in faith to the Lord. Now we say if ever there was a case where one person's faith was strong enough to save someone else, to grant forgiveness for someone else, surely it's Paul who wishes he could even be cut off for their sake. Surely it's Paul who prayed day and night, who who was in anguish and tears for his kinsmen. Surely that faith would do the trick, if ever it could happen, but forgiveness doesn't work that way. There is no priest. There is no parent. There is no grieving relative that can believe strongly enough that the Lord will save you and forgive you on behalf of their faith individual repentance, individual forgiveness requires individual faith. And so the man must have had individual faith as well. But it's also true that the Lord uses the faith of others as part of bringing individuals to faith in himself. And you know that's true if you simply think about the way that the Lord called you to himself. Maybe you're one of those people, and you can think of, a particular moment of conversion. You think back on your life, and the Lord brought you to a point. Maybe there was an individual who spoke to you, who sat down with you and explained the doctrine of Christ and called you to put your faith in him. Maybe it was one sermon by one pastor at one church somewhere along the line. Maybe it was one verse that jumped out at you from the text as though it were a lion pursuing your soul. Maybe you can think about that one time, but also you need to think about all of the hands that carried the stretcher to bring you to that moment. How many other prayers of other faithful saints were answered when you were converted? How many faithful sermons by other faithful pastors did you hear up to that point that were somewhere bubbling in the background that you never thought about and never considered until they all came back in one gracious moment? How many others were involved in bearing witness to you before the Spirit called you? You see, the Lord makes use of these things. He makes use of the reaching, persistent faith of his people to bring others to himself. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be a challenge for us. When we see the way that these men were willing to stop at nothing, to bring a friend they obviously loved before the feet of Jesus, This ought to challenge us to think not only of the obstacles that we face in our own faith, but what are the obstacles that we allow to stand between us and bringing others to Jesus? Maybe it is that societal embarrassment. Maybe it's a lack of love. This is the way Kent Hughes puts it, and he puts a finer point on it than I'm able to. He says, in our own lives, our family and friends will likely not know the healing touch of Christ unless we have the kind of love that rips open roofs, so to speak. If we're not praying, if we're not prying open any roofs, do we really love them? His question is a question of love. The same could be true of our faith. If we are not bringing others to the Lord, if we're not reaching to bring others to Jesus, do we really believe that Jesus is what they need? is what faith does it reaches and it recognizes obstacles and it reaches beyond them and it does so because we believe firmly that Jesus Christ is what we need and who we need because we realize that every day men and women boys and girls are perishing in their sins apart from Jesus Christ there's a calling here to be willing to reach not only for our own faith but for the sake of those Lord is going to call as a result of our ministry. So here's the first thing we see. There is a faith that reaches, and we're called to have this kind of reaching faith. Now, the second thing that uh, grabs our attention in this passage is a claim. It is a claim that provokes. A claim that provokes. Again, uh, our focus is on verse 20. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man... Your sins are forgiven you. Now, clearly, this was a statement that was intended to provoke the religious leaders who were sitting there that day. Jesus is drawing out their hidden animosities that he already knows they have against him. They're not there. Uh, charitably, they're there to see what's going on and to check in because they are the de facto leaders of the religious community and they are the ones who are the gatekeepers. And so he, he is provoking them intentionally. But before we think about the way that Jesus is provoking the Pharisees and the scribes, imagine how provocative this would have been to the man who's laying there before Jesus. Mark tells us there were four men carrying their companions. They have just spent the better part of an afternoon, at least, uh, hauling him and his bed up to the top of a house. Uh, They had to carry him up a set of stairs to the roof, and somebody had to go and gather some ropes because they hadn't planned to be doing this today, and they began to dig. And they're making a fuss, and it's all clearly for a very obvious reason. Now, we don't know the prayer that's in their heart. But we do know that they were there with their paralyzed friend, and here he comes, lowered through the roof, And laid at the feet of the one who has already proven that he can rebuke fevers and cure lepers and heal diseases. And we recognize that as he's lowered down, everybody is holding their breath. What will Jesus do with this man with such an obvious physical need? And in fact, Luke makes you hold your breath as you read this passage. Because back in verse 17, he gave us that almost unnecessary detail. Jesus was teaching, and the scribes were there, and oh, by the way, the power of God was with him to heal. And so here he comes, and you're waiting for the passage to jump from verse 19 to verse 24. Man, get up. Your faith has healed you. Go home. That's what you want to happen. That's what you expect to happen, and it doesn't happen. Not yet, at least. Can you imagine how provocative that would have been? Here is this man trapped in the indignity of first-century disability. He is completely dependent upon other people for even the most basic human needs and functions, and he's laying before the only one who can save him and heal him and make himself sufficient again. And Jesus says, I've taken care of your sins. How provocative. This is a challenge to believe that Jesus actually knows our needs better than we do. We see, we have a few options. Several of them are not very good. We can either look at this passage and say, well, uh, clearly, Jesus is out of touch with the affliction of this man. That's not a good option. Or we could say that Jesus might even be being cruel to this man. That's also a really terrible option. Or we can look at this passage and say, actually, Jesus knows full well what's at stake. And he is directing this entire crowd, the man included, and his friends, and the crowd, and the Pharisees, he is directing this entire crowd to consider the fact that our most fundamental problem is the guilt of our sin. And that ought to change our approach to Jesus. That ought to change our prayers. Now, we believe. That Christ still has the power to heal. I hope you noticed that as I prayed this morning. And we take our our brothers and sisters, our, our friends and our relatives, and we lay them before the Lord with their physical ailments. But the way that Jesus is approaching this situation should make us realize that if all we ever do is ask the Lord to heal the physical infirmities of those who are around us, we will have missed the point of our greatest need, and we will have missed the point of Jesus' whole ministry. Jesus is provoking all of us today to consider the fact that no matter what we're suffering, no matter what stresses of our lives are tightening their grip around us to recognize that our greatest need is forgiveness of sins and also to recognize that his greatest gift is that we can come to him in faith and that we can be forgiven. That's the point of his ministry. That's what he did, and he is provoking everyone sitting there today. He's provoking you sitting here today. What is your greatest need in this world? Is it to have a greater bank account? Is it to have your body healed? Is it to be rid of the sorrow that you carry around from past relationships? Is it some other thing in this world, or is it to be reconciled to God Almighty? And Jesus is saying, this is what you need. This is your primary need, and this is my primary ministry. And so he provokes us to approach him on his terms and his standards. Of course, Jesus is also provoking us to consider who he claims to be. This was the point uh, with the religious leaders. As soon as these words uh, left Jesus' mouth, the scribes and the Pharisees bristled. Not outwardly, They, 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 they were too cool for that. They didn't let that show. They had perfect poker faces, but inside in their hearts they were bristling with anger And they raged against Jesus when he claimed to forgive sins. And they raised two important questions. You can see it there. Uh, In verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees, they raised two questions. The first is, who is this man? And the second is, who can forgive sins? Now, here we're brought uh, to that old problem of horseshoes and hand grenades. Because they raised two questions, and they were 50% correct. They had a 500 batting average, which would be pretty good, except that means that they completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying and what he was about. Close was not enough. Their underlying premise was okay. The second of these questions, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's true. Only God can forgive sins. David declared in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we don't get to object to that. We don't get to say, well, what about Uriah the Hittite? What about Bathsheba? What about the, the human collateral damage after all of your sin, David? We don't get to raise that objection. Yes, it's true that there is always a, a human component when we sin, and there is, there is offense and there is fracturing of relationships and our sin in the world, but at its very core, at its base, all sin is an offense against the holy God who created man upright in the garden to reflect his holy and perfect nature. To be made in his image to show forth who he is in the world. And every time we enter into sin, we are offending his perfection. And so they were correct. No one can forgive sins but God alone. The scribes are right. All sin is against God and only God can erase it. Now here, the scribes and the Pharisees actually deserve more credit than we sometimes give them. They certainly deserve more credit uh, than some modern commentators. Some modern commentators read this passage and they say, well, Jesus is just doing the same sort of thing that the Old Testament prophets did. Uh, To continue with with David and Bathsheba, remember the time that Nathan came before David. We read it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And the response is, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sins. You shall not die. What was David doing? He was proclaiming, Forgiveness of sins, but he was simply telling David what God had done. He was a spokesman, he was a, a mouthpiece, and in some capacity, uh, ministers today can do the same thing. I can tell you based on, on what the Lord has revealed of himself that all those who come to Jesus in faith and repentance will be forgiven and every week in our uh, our order of worship, there is an assurance of pardon from god 's word, and he says through his people and through his scriptures. Forgiveness is granted to those who come to him. But that is totally different from what Jesus is doing here. He's not simply saying, here's what God has done. He's not simply declaring what God has forgiven. He is granting repentance. And that's a totally different ball of wax. In fact, the question later that Jesus uh, poses to them is whether or not they believe that he has authority to forgive, not just authority to declare. And so Jesus actually is forgiving sins here. And so if it's true that God alone can forgive sins, and if it's true that Jesus himself is saying that he has authority to forgive sins, then this is one of the most provocative statements that Jesus ever uttered. And I tried not to, but C.S. Lewis is too good not to quote at this point. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is provoking here. Yes, it's true that God alone can forgive sins. And yes, it's true that Jesus forgives sins. And we either come to the conclusion of the Pharisees that he is full of blasphemy, or we have to say that he is God himself. And he wants us to know which one we come to, which decision we come to. He's provoking us to consider what we really need, and he's provoking us to consider who he really is. And so there is in this passage a a faith that reaches, and it reaches beyond obstacles to get to Jesus, and there is also a claim that provokes us to consider what we need and to consider who he is. But finally, there is a miracle that demonstrates, a miracle that demonstrates the power of Christ. Of course, Jesus did eventually heal this man's body. He spoke a command uh, that this man was not able to keep on his own, but because the Christ the Lord willed it, he was able to keep it. And the command was, get up and carry your bed and go home. And verse 25 says immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up what he'd been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And this man experienced two miracles in one day. He had all of his sins forgiven by God in the flesh, and his body was returned to wholeness and strength and usefulness. And he left that meeting a completely different person than he came in. But I want you to notice why Jesus healed him. Or perhaps why he did not heal him. It says in verse 24, Jesus says, It was so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why he healed him. He did not say, well, because you have so faithfully served me, you deserve to be healed. He didn't say that you've got this this powerful kernel of faith within you, and faith is so powerful that I have to do what your faith requires of me, and so I have no choice but to heal you. He didn't even say, I'm going to heal him because I love him, because I want my people to have all the best things in the world, and that includes full use of their faculties. None of these reasons, Jesus healed him so that his word would be proven true. Jesus healed this man to get glory for himself, so that everyone sitting there, the Pharisees and the scribes included, would know that Jesus is a man of his word, that he is the Messiah that he was proclaiming himself to be. We're not going to take the time to look at it, but this is the first occurrence in Luke of the the name, the Son of Man. which you can trace right back to Daniel chapter 7, the one who comes and the Father is seated, the Ancient of Days, and one like a Son of Man is brought forth, and to him is given dominion and power and authority. And this is what Jesus is saying, and they know it. And the reason that he healed him is so that everyone would know there is a miracle And the demonstration of this miracle is to show the authority of Jesus, and he uses this exchange, this exchange between something that is easy to say and really hard to prove and something that's hard to say and really easy to prove. You see, forgiveness is the sort of thing that is easy to say but almost impossible to prove, at least in in human uh, terms. Forgiveness is the sort of thing that's invisible, and I might ask your forgiveness for some sin that I've committed against you, and you may say, yes, 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 I forgive you, but I've got to take your word for it, because I can't see that forgiveness. And you might be granting forgiveness with your lips, but harboring uh, resentment and bitterness in your heart, and I can't see it. I I can't prove that. But a man who was paralyzed getting up and walking, well, that's provable. That's demonstrable. It's a lot harder to say, though, because everyone will know immediately If it's true, and Jesus is saying, when you see the way that I'm going to work in his life, when you see the miracle that he is going to become, you will have no choice but to acknowledge that I am who I say I am, that I have the authority of God on earth to forgive sins. In Matthew's account, in chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, he tells us that when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, quote, who had given such authority to men. That's what happened. They recognized Jesus' authority. And this man went out, and his worship was contagious. And everybody else began to praise. But you need to know that the Lord is doing the same thing with his people today. Now, I know. The reality is that many believers come to the Lord with physical problems, and they come in faith, and they are not healed. Let's not gloss over that. This is not a statement saying that if you have enough faith, Jesus will heal you, or even that you deserve to heal you, or even that Jesus will choose to demonstrate his power by healing you. That's not what this is proving. We never run out of brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for as we consider what disease is doing in our midst and the way that our bodies are racked with pain and affliction. We never run out of that sort of thing. But that would be a problem if, Jesus' primary ministry in the world was to convince everyone that he had the authority to heal. If that's what Jesus was about, then all those who are not healed are a real problem for our faith. Then all of that is a statement that says, well, clearly you can't trust the Lord. But bodily ailments aren't our greatest need, and bodily ailments aren't Jesus' primary focus. The primary focus of Jesus' ministry is the forgiveness of of sins, and that can be had whether you are sick or well, whether you are poor or rich, whether you live here in America or somewhere in Morocco or anywhere else around the world, and whatever status you seem to be in, whether you've got worldly prosperity or worldly affliction, forgiveness can be granted, and it can be seen in lots of different ways. Now, the problem is, again, forgiveness is invisible. It's unseen. The problem is that the Lord gathers his elect to himself and he washes them clean and then he sends them into the world with this message of guilt that the world can't see and forgiveness that the world can't see and there is conflict. And just as they did here, people scoff and they disbelieve. And they think that you're crazy because you're preaching a message that has no resonance with their life and they can't even see what this message of Christ and Him crucified has to do with Him. And the question is, what is the Savior to do? How is He to defend Himself against the scoffers who refuse to believe that He's able to back up His claims of forgiveness? How does Jesus demonstrate His power in the midst of conflict with an unbelieving world? The answer is he does it the same way he always has, by working a miracle on the lives of his people. Maybe not a physical miracle, but he restores them, he delivers them. He delivers them from oppression and fear and visible sins that people can see. Sins like gossip, and sins like backbiting, and sins like theft and drug addiction. The Lord demonstrates his power to forgive through the miracle of changed lives in his people. And broken sinners come to him, carried, as it were, on a stretcher of sin, paralyzed by malice and envy and and hatred and strife, and bound by all the sins that make humanity most unattractive and ugly and full of, of, of reproach. And Jesus gathers his elect to himself. And in the sight of the world, he says, you see that person there, dead in the trespasses and the sins in which they once walked. I want you to see what I'm going to do. I just see the way that I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to make them my workmanship. I'm going to cause them to walk in newness of life with me. I'm going to give them good works, which I have prepared beforehand that they should do. That's what he does. He takes dead people, dead in their sin, paralyzed people, paralyzed by their sin, and he gives them feet to walk. Why is it so important that we should have a faith that reaches, a faith that is visible, a faith that the world can see that we trust in God more than the things of this world because that's the miracle that he's working in his people that will demonstrate his authority. They can't see your forgiveness. They can't see the forgiveness that you're calling them to, but they can see the way that you walk. They can see how closely you follow your Savior. They can see the way that you speak to them, the way that you care for them. And maybe they'll look at you and they'll see someone who once seemed to be paralyzed by an inability to say anything kind. Maybe that's your sin. Maybe it's a sin of judgmentalism and that sharp tongue. And yet as the Lord works in you, something changes. And they see your good works and they glorify God in the day of his visitation. You see, it's still a miracle. It's still an obedience that you can't work for yourself, but it's something the Lord calls us to and he says, walk with me and I will make you able to walk and I will fill your mouth with praise to the Lord and others will see the miracle that I work in your life and I will demonstrate my authority through my delivered people. That's what he's doing. He does it through his people and he does it in conflict and he does it by his spirit, giving us a faith that reaches to his claim that he is the one who's able to forgive sins. Why don't you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We pray that you would make us to walk with you. pray that you would give us faith uh, to press forward in the way that you are leading us, not by our own achievements or our own ambitions, but by your spirit at work in our lives. Oh, Lord, glorify yourself and your servants. We pray that if there are any here who have yet uh, been undecided about why Jesus has come and his authority to forgive sins, and to cleanse us by his sacrificial blood of atonement. We pray that you would draw them to yourself in faith and forgiveness, and set them free, and give them feet to walk with you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A table which uh, shows us signs and seals of forgiving grace, which proclaims to us that the Lord is the one who keeps us walking with Him and pressing forward with Him. We come and we see these signs of body and blood, of bread in a cup, body broken and blood poured out to join His people to Himself. And we come and we receive a promise that all those who are His, the Lord will keep and the Lord will sustain and the Lord will cause to be sanctified until that day that He draws them to Himself. We hear In Mark's Gospel, the words of institution, it tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body, and he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this table is for you. This promise is for you that you will eat and drink in the kingdom of God. You are encouraged, you are called to come to this table if you are his, if you have trusted in him, if you have joined yourself to a church where his gospel is proclaimed and his word is believed. If you have not done those things, if you have not believed in him and been joined to a visible church that proclaims his gospel, please don't come yet to this table. Consider whether the Lord is calling you to himself, whether he is calling you in faith, and cry out to him. This is for God's people, and so we come together. Please join me in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for this table set before us, and we pray that you would take these bare and earthly elements and set them aside for a holy use, that you by your spirit would work in the hearts of your people. Cause us to look to you in faith until that day when you will unite us to yourself through Jesus Christ and by the work of your spirit. Keep us and sustain us and make this a means of grace for your people that we being saved through faith in the word of Christ might be built up in faith unto uh, sanctification and life in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed gathered together with his disciples and he took bread and after he blessed it he broke it and he gave it to them and he said this is my body which is broken for you take and eat do this in remembrance of me Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for Christ, your Son, the proof of your love, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And having given us your Son, how can we not also trust that you will give us all things necessary in him, And so, O Lord, build up your people in life and faith through your Spirit and by your Word until that day when we eat and drink together with you. In the kingdom of God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal is number 235. All glory, Laud, and Honor. Won't you stand as we we sing, number two hundred and thirty-five?